One of the things that is central to Christian faith, Christian theology, to be a Christian is the belief in the second coming of Christ. Now, within the dynamics of the church, uh, broad, worldwide, global, talking about those who believe uh, in the faith, there is great diversity as far as understanding the certain mechanics of when, how, where that is all going to happen. There is some, some, not as much as some would have you to believe, some ambiguity in Scripture as far as uh, that differences can, Christians can have differences. It's one of those areas in the study of theology of the end times. It's, it's uh, if theology, it's called eschatology. You don't need to worry about that. But it's just the doctrine of future things, last things. And it is important, I believe, for Christians to have a solid understanding concerning the second coming of Christ. Now, as I said, we will have in the church, we will have perhaps differences, but to be uh, just someone who just says, well, you know, it's too difficult for me to understand. I don't think it's that difficult to understand. And I think also it's important to, that not, we're not maybe dogmatic in drawing lines of fellowship between those who they may not agree with certain aspects. They all agree, hopefully, if they believe in the Bible, they all believe that Jesus is coming back. We agree on that. But will there be a rapture before the tribulation period? Will it happen in the middle of the tribulation period? Will it happen after? All those things, good believers differ. Uh, But at the same time, it's important as a Christian to kind of land somewhere, lean into somewhere, and don't do it in in a way that draws division, but land somewhere. Be a student of the Word. Be someone who is consistent in opening the Bible and that you desire to understand what the Bible teaches. And that's what uh, I've tried to do, and I'm sure that's what you've tried to do as well as a follower of Christ. But I just point out something to you that I I trust will be familiar. In Acts chapter 1, this, of course, in chapter 1 is the period right after the resurrection. Jesus has spent 40 days with his disciples before what we, uh, the Bible refers to as the ascension, when he ascended back to the presence with his Father, where the Bible depicts him seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning he is currently ruling and reigning in the presence of, in, in heaven. Okay, We're not necessarily awaiting his kingship because there is a part in which he is ruling in a kingship right now. But in Acts chapter 1, right before he left, there's this dialogue between himself and his disciples. And it says in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him. This is kind of like maybe after 40 days they've been burning with this question. Maybe they've been you know, saying, you ask him. You ask him. No, I don't want to ask him. Last time I asked him a question, it was a stupid question. And, you know, and, and, and so finally they said, look... This is our last chance, right? Ask him this question. So it says that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there's a lot of things, uh, as one writer I love, he, he always there's a lot of things pregnant in that verse, okay? There's a lot of things in that verse that uh, are important to pay attention to. One, they were good Jewish boys, they understood the Old Testament, and even more so now that uh, Jesus had uh, given them some understanding, their understanding will increase as with the coming of the Holy Spirit in the next chapter, in chapter 2. But they, they were not in error in asking that question because Jesus did not rebuke them for asking that question. So that tells me that somewhere in the theology of last things, in the future teaching of future things, in the second coming of Christ, that there is a place for the restoration of Israel in the final dynamics of how things turn out, okay? Because Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. Oh, no, 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 we're, you know, that's, what are you guys asking? That, that's, that's the wrong approach. No, no, no. 
He didn't, he didn't contradict. He didn't, he didn't say what they were asking was wrong in itself, but notice what he says. They said, Lord, will it at this time, I mean, now that you've been crucified, resurrected, surely now you're going to restore the Davidic kingdom. Okay, that's what prophecies in the Old Testament all portrayed a Messiah who would come and rule and reign in a kingdom where the Messiah is in complete authority. But Jesus said to them, what does he say? He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed. That word fix, that means it's not a haphazard. There's something that in the eternal counsels of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the Godhead, there is something that is fixed, Michael. There is a fixed time that God operates in His timetable. Galatians 4.4, I believe, says that at just the exact time God sent forth His Son. Okay? God is a God of detail. He's operating on a clear time schedule, okay? And he says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They want what they asked. They want to know Lord, is it at this time? I mean, remember James and John, and they even got their mom involved at one point. They're jockeying for who's going to be the vice president and the executive. You know, they're doing that kind of thing. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, you know, the mom, when you put my boys, they're good boys. I know they get into, but they're good boys. You know, I know they want to wipe out the Samaritans. Remember that one time, John, they just said, hey, Lord, just destroy him, you know. Aren't you glad he's not in charge of things? Uh, but God did a work of grace in John's life. But, so they had a lot of misunderstanding. Even Peter, remember when Peter took Jesus aside and said, Lord, uh, you know, I don't want to give you, but hey, you're wrong. Imagine that kind of thing. Uh, you're talking about dying. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. That's not our understanding. Well, Isaiah 53, clearly, and we read that at uh, Resurrection or the Good Friday service, Isaiah 53 clearly talks about the suffering servant, the Lamb of God that would come to be slain as a sacrifice. So it wasn't strange, but unfortunately through the uh, misapplication of the Old Testament, Jewish theology had moved into a sphere where they saw the Messiah more as a political military type person who was going to come and throw the bums out of Rome and establish Israel back to the glories of when David was ruling on his kingdom. Remember in the Bible, David's kingdom, it was such a powerhouse of authority in the world that uh, there weren't any wars to fight. There was a time, and that's, that's when he got in trouble in that season. There wasn't anything to do. I mean, everything was peace. There was no wars to fight. The kingdom was expanded all over. Things were rolling in. And that was the glory of Israel that they longed for. They had not known that for generations They had been under somebody's authority at one time or another, and now more recently they're under the rulership of Rome that was certainly abusing them and uh, mistreating them, and they only saw hope in this Messiah. Jesus said, look, time is fixed. I can't tell you that, guys. And But right now there still is work to do. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. Now, the word witness... Is the in the Greek is the word martyros, which is the word we get martyr. You know what a martyr is? Now we know Islamic martyrs. I'm not talking about, but there are martyrs as someone who is killed or dies for their their faith in, in just a general sense, but in particular to Christian uh, and in the Christianity that it's someone who dies for the gospel, who is murdered or killed for the gospel. Now imagine that. They think now's the time we're really going to roll into Rome and and show our authority. And Jesus says, you're going to be my martyrs. What? What? Martyrs? They knew what martyr was. The the English trend, we soften it. Witnesses. Oh, we're going to go door to door and pass out tracts. That's witnesses, right? Uh, No. You're going to be my martyrs. In other words, you're going to put your life on the line, and you're going to start out around your hometown, and it's going to expand. In other words, there's still work to be done, Jesus says. Before I return, there is still something the Father is yet to complete. 
And so look at what happens after he finished. It says, verse 9, when he said these things, and pay attention to the language here, as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, where is he? Where? I don't know. Is that? No, that's a bird. No. What? what? Where? I mean, they're just, they're totally baffled by what happened. It wasn't some apparition ghost. His body, his body was lifted up into heaven. That would impress me. Would that impress you? I mean, the fact that he's risen from the dead, but now he bodily is lifted up into heaven, and they were gazing into heaven as he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now again, don't pay attention to the language. This Jesus, say this Jesus. That means this same physical Jesus that you just witnessed ascend in you, before your very sight, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. You with me? As you saw him going to heaven. Why is that a big deal? Because you've got all these wackos, and that's a Greek word, wackos, wackos. <laughs> all right? You got all these wackos claiming to be a to claiming to be Jesus returned. I mean, you can look through history and you always the problem is they all die. I would think that's a problem to the program, right? If you're going to be a Messiah and you're going to be the second coming of Jesus, somehow you got to figure out how to live forever, right? But they hadn't quite mastered that. Uh, and so you have these people that claim, and every once in a while they'll have something on the news or they'll have, you know, if they can get a website and, you know, and, I mean, nothing new. People have done that even before Jesus. Remember, I think it was Gamaliel when he was giving counsel to the Pharisees about what to do with these Christians. And he basically said, look, do you remember? And he cited historical people that came and went and claimed to be this or claimed to be that. He said, look, if this is not of God, it'll die off. But if it is of God, there ain't nothing you're going to do about it. In other words, what he was saying in that, my point is, is look, there's been people that have come through history claiming to be followers. They're the Messiah, whatever, and it turned up nothing. He said, look, this, is, this could be that same thing. But if it isn't, there ain't nothing you can do to stop it. But the point is, is that right here, right before, again, there's this turning of the chapter with the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, you see that it ends and begins there around the hinge of Jesus' ascension, but also with the words and confidence from the Word of God and also these messengers that are unidentified, but some type of angelic messengers that say, look, this same Jesus is going to come back just like you saw him go up. The same Jesus bodily, okay, we believe in the bodily second coming of Christ in the same way is going to come back. So that is what the church has believed from the beginning, okay? Uh, now, turn over to Luke chapter 12. And I want us to look at the words of Jesus this morning. And uh, if you would, go ahead and let's put the scripture on the screen and we're going to read it. If you would stand, if you were going to, if you have your, a different translation, that's okay. But uh, we're going to read from the ESV. And it, uh, we'll begin reading, and we're going to read from verse 35 through 40, and uh, you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible, and just follow as I read. Jesus is speaking here. He says, stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once. When he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, the second watch, if they're Jewish timetable, would be from 9 p.m. to midnight. Or the third watch, that would be midnight to 3 a.m. under Jewish uh, timing. Um, If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now, here's the, here's the point here of what Jesus is trying to illustrate. You must be ready for the Son of Man, that choice term he pulls out of Ezekiel to identify himself. The Son of Man, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let's pray. Father, help us understand your word. Let it be an encouragement to our hearts. Let it increase faith in our life To, uh, in the midst of a chaotic world that we live in, a chaotic country that's so confused. Lord, let us fix our eyes upon the king who is presently ruling and reigning and will come one day and put his feet on the Mount of Olives and will literally be seen by every eye, heard by every ear. Lord, that Jesus has come back. So, Lord, let us take your word and gain confidence in your scripture today and solidify, God, one of the core core beliefs of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that this same Jesus will return. We ask this in that name. And everybody said amen. You may be seated. All right, let's get into this. Um, the New Testament, as I said, is clear on the second coming of Christ. There's no mystery there. It does teach that. Again, where sometimes we get a little uh, difference is in some of the mechanics or particulars, but the Bible is clear in teaching the second coming of Christ. Let me quote to you a few, uh, a few individuals that are, are, are smart, uh, smart folks who've said some things that are helpful. Uh, Lewis Johnson, who was a former professor at Dallas Seminary, said this, He said, did you know that the second coming of the Lord Jesus is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament? He said, now there are 300 and something chapters in the New Testament. In other words, in every chapter proportionally in the New Testament, we have some reference to the second coming of Christ. That should tell us that this is kind of a big deal. Uh, George Sweeting, who for many, many years was the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, once estimated that more than a fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme of of prophetic predictive prophecy. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. One out of every 30 verses makes reference to the return of Christ. Again, I'm just trying to, don't worry about the numbers, I'm just trying to show you that this is not some little vague thing back in the maps. Hello? This is, this is all through there, okay? Um, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second coming of Christ. And Sweeting says this, For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ in the Old Testament, because you know there's predictive prophecy in the Old about the first coming, he says for every one of those, there are eight that refer to the second coming of Christ. So what is that? what's the Holy Spirit who inspired our Bible? What is the point in trying to emphasize is this is that God is making sure and putting an exclamation point that Jesus Christ is coming again. Don't miss it. You you, you you, you don't miss it in Scripture. Don't miss it. And if it's that important, it should be important important enough for us to have some level of competency as Christians and understanding of what we believe. Billy Graham. Everybody heard of him? said, Our world is filled with fear, Hate, lust, greed, war, 
and utter despair, surely the second coming of Jesus Christ is the only hope of replacing these depressing features with trust, love, universal peace, and prosperity. Do you find yourself, and this is more our little American thing right now, but do you find yourself with all the stuff going on in the political world just like, listen, I have been watching more Sports Center than news lately because I am so sick of the news. I'm so sick of what's going on. You want to wake up and say, okay, will the adults show up, please? Hello? You know, when, all right, all right, fun and games is over. Will the real people running for president, they want to run this country? You know, they want to run, not run the country, they want to ruin the country. I'm just tired of it. But you know what it reminds me? Listen, it's always going to be, and it's going to be this way more so, the chaos and the confusion, because Jesus says that prior to the return, prior to his return, and again, I'm not one of these say, oh, it's going to happen next month, next year. I don't know, and you don't know. And don't buy any books that tell you they know. Remember when some guy said it was going to be 1988? And Y2K, remember that crisis? Oh, my gosh. I'm getting my Y3K books out early now. I'm going to make some money off this crisis. Christians just are gullible, gullible people. Be looking and believing that Jesus is going to return Be biblical in what you think and believe. Don't buy every paperback book that comes off the the press. That's that's some, you know, scandal of who this. And if they tell you who the Antichrist is, then we're in trouble because the Antichrist only is revealed, in my understanding, after the rapture takes place. So the only people that are going to identify the Antichrist are the people that got left behind. So if you think you know who the Antichrist is, hello, we're we're all cooked, all right? We're in trouble. So don't buy into that nonsense. In this passage, in verses 35 through 40, and again, this may sound like a long message, but it really won't be. Because once the food starts wafering through the air vents, I'm going to lose you, okay? I'm going to lose you. I know that. There's four word pictures here. Because when you read that, you're like, it seems a little disjointed. Just look at verse 35 through 40. He uses four pictures to, to really illustrate the same truth. The same truth is this, two words, be ready, be ready. And he just gives you four little snapshots. The first picture he flashes on the screen is, is talking about uh, be dressed in readiness, be prepared. And you may have a King James or another version that talks about let your loins be girded. We don't say that. We don't talk that way. But in this day, uh, people wore long robes. And can you imagine running in a long robe? Women who have long dresses, can you imagine running the, uh, you know, the, the, the marathon or out on the racetrack? Um, you know, I know there are some, well, I won't get into that, but, you know, they still wear the, you know, whatever. But anyway, I better not go there. All right. So, so he's saying, look, you got you to gotta tuck up those robes because, listen, when the master comes, you better be ready. You're like, oh, is he here? Okay, well, let me go get my shirt. Let me go get my jacket. No. You be ready and waiting because at any moment, the master could pull up and he expects you to get out there and take care of whatever he's got, right? I'm talking about in an earthly sense. Uh, here's another picture about keep your lamps on, keep your lamps lit. Uh, this is a member of a day, there's no electricity, and if you're expecting somebody to, you ever had somebody, a family member, and they're going to say, man, I'm not going to get in, Dad, till about 2 a.m. All right, well, I'll leave the light on for you because I'm going to bed, right? So what is he saying? If you're expecting a midnight visitor, uh, you keep some oil in the light burning so when he knocks on the door, you're ready to let him in, okay? In other words, you're expecting, you're ready. That's the second picture, uh, the master's coming, so be ready. Have the light on. Be, be, be looking for him. Verse 38, there's a third picture. And that's uh, of, again, these servants, uh, again, giving a picture of an of a, of a, of a owner of a large house with servants, obviously. And they're waiting for their master's return back from a wedding feast, a party. You know, he's out with his friends, and they're coming in late. And so when they come in, he expects his employees of the house to be ready, to be waiting for him. He may want cookies and milk before he goes to bed. He may want some, 
you know, somebody to take care of. He might need a little help out of the carriage if he's been out partying till 2 a.m., okay? It's okay. Smile, laugh. You're not going to explode, all right? Uh, in other words, what's the point is, look, when I show up, you better be up and ready because I may have something. I, I may want a roast beef sandwich at 3 a.m. from dinner. In other words, I expect you to be waiting. Do you think they're up? just hanging out because they love to be up in the middle of the night? No, they're up because they know their master expects them to be on the job. You with me? That's the third picture. All it is is be ready, be ready, be ready, be expected servants. And then the fourth picture is a little different. All the same thing he's emphasizing is to be ready is he gives a picture of a, of a thief that breaks in. And he says, look, the, the, if... If you were ready and waiting and on your job, the thief would not have come in. And his point in this is saying that these things happen unexpectedly. Well, I was caught off guard. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're not going to be caught off guard because you need to be one who are ready and waiting for the master to return back to the house. And so just like... If a thief broke in, you'd be ready. That wouldn't have happened because you would be on the job. Jesus' point is this. In these four pictures, he says, look at verse 40. After all these different ways he's trying to say the same thing, you too be what? Ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not, what does it say, expect. Just kind of as a, as, a, as a side principle here that uh, kind of alluded to earlier that I think is really important when we talk about New Testament prophecy concerning the second coming of Christ, without getting into a lot of the uh, minutia of it, in some of the different ways that people approach these things is that there's an approach which tends to spiritualize or do not read into some of the prophecies as literal events as they read. They want to say, well, I know it says that literally, but, you know, it's more of spiritually meaning da-da-da or whatever. And again, I can't really get into a lot of that. Here's the principle I want you to keep in mind. This is free. Say free. Free. You like free. Everybody like free stuff? Of course you do. This is free. You're not going to be charged for this today. If... The Old Testament, remember when we were talking about Old Testament prophecies? If the Old Testament prophecies, okay, about Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally, why would we expect the prophecies of his second coming to not be fulfilled literally? Right? So that's how we approach in our understanding of the, uh, of the fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm just going to kind of leave it there. In the little bit of time we have, and I'm, again, we're going to let you out a little early today so we can eat. How can I be ready for his return? I believe that as a Christian, that should be something that's important to us. Peter, interestingly, Peter, and you, you can just make reference to this or remember it, um, in Second Peter 3, he talks about that in the latter days there will be scoffers, people that say, okay, where is he? He said he was going to return, where is he? Uh, and Peter recognizes that, look, God operates, and I'm paraphrasing Second Peter 3, he said, for, uh, 3 through 13, he, he says, look, God operates and essentially by his own timetable. And one of the things that Peter in Second Peter 3 refers to He refers to the God who created, and also he makes reference to God as a God of judgment. Ooh, that's that's politically incorrect. We shouldn't say that in church. No, the Bible does talk about God as a judge. Uh, Paul, in Acts 17, when he was among those Greeks on Mars Hill, the Oropagus, he talked about this Jesus God has appointed as a judge. Read it sometime, not now. Acts 17. Baby Jesus as a judge? Oh, we love the baby Jesus. Don't talk about judge. Paul said to these non-Jewish, you know, we think sometimes we have to take 
the truth of the word and just water it down to ignorance to reach. Now, so Paul taught the truth of the word. He packaged it in a way that was understandable to these non-Jews there in Acts chapter 17. But he did make reference that this Jesus God has appointed who will judge the earth. God bless you. God will judge the earth. Okay? So, in, in going back to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter, in answering the scoffers that would say, Where is he? Peter reminds them in 2 Peter 3 that God is going to judge the earth. But this is what I want you to just remember out of what Peter said. He says that God is delaying his judgment. God is delaying his judgment because of his great patience and mercy as he waits for more to come to repentance. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't return 10 years ago, some of you? 10 months ago? Huh? Aren't you glad that God in his mercy and grace is patient and awaiting for those that He has elected from all eternity to come into the kingdom of God? Aren't you glad that He's merciful and gracious? So I don't understand all that. Well, understand this. God is merciful and patient. And those relatives and people that are unsaved in your family, He's, he's waiting. He's waiting. Maybe waiting on you to be the messenger that, that finally opens the mouth and gives them the gospel or, or does something in a way to, that the Holy Spirit can use to woo Him to woo them to, to himself. But the point of Peter, it says, he says, but it's interesting that in 2 Peter 3.10, he talks about the thief. Maybe he remembers, I'm sure he does, what Jesus taught. He said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He remembers Jesus' teaching on that. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, notice how he's connecting the second coming of Jesus with the judgment of God. Christians do not have to fear judgment because we, as believers, we have already been judged in the cross of Christ. He has not appointed us to wrath, the Bible says, okay? But those outside who have rejected Christ cannot rely upon the confidence of the gospel because they have rejected the gospel. You with me? Just breathe. It's going to be okay. You're going to survive this morning. Peter says, since all these things God has planned, listen to how he ends 2 Peter 3 and verse 12. What sort of people ought you to be? Knowing all this, just go around and condemn and hate and God's going to wipe every... No. What sort of people ought you to be? He says, here's what it is. You ought to be people who are holy, H-O-L-Y, in your conduct, not in your theology. That is important. But theology usually reveals itself in conduct. If you have a vision of God as just somebody that winks his eye at your sin, you're going you're gonna to live a life that demonstrates that. So what sort of people are you ought to be? You ought to be people who are holy in your conduct. Quit trying to go around and make other people holy in their conduct. You be holy in your conduct. Hello? Be holy in your conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming, anticipating the coming of the day of the Lord. Second Peter 3, read that sometime. But let me give you real quickly... How do we get ready? And they're all from, drawn from the Luke passage here. We're back in Luke. Three areas that I'll go through rather quickly. Number one, to be ready for Jesus' coming, he must be your master. What's he talking about? Masters and servants. <clears throat> if you haven't figured out your role, we need to go back and get a, get a I need to draw a little chart up here. You're the servant, he's the master, he's in charge. You know, you with me? But if he is not your master, you're not ready. If he's not, we'll say it this way, if he is not Lord, you're not ready. 
You know, the British still refer and use the title Lord Grantham. How many of you who know who Lord Grantham is? How many of you have no clue of who Lord Grantham is? Well, that tells me all I need to know about you. You don't watch Downton Abbey, all right? And for those of us who love Downton Abbey, we're in mourning because the season and the whole thing ended. We're sad. But to be ready for Christ coming, he must be your master. He must be your master. And look in verse, look back in, in, in Luke 12 there in the passage. For those that he is their master, he gives some promises. Verse 37, he says, blessed. Verse 38, blessed. Verse 43, blessed. You see, if you have Jesus as Lord of your life, master of your life, you will be blessed when the master comes back. What does Romans 8, 28 say? For we know that God works all things together for good. Got in our coffee mugs, little plaques. We love it. But read the whole verse. For we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His what? So if that tells me that God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, then let's, back, let's flip it over. If I don't love Him, therefore I, if I don't love Him, I must not be called according to His purpose, and I cannot assume that all things will work together for my good, right? That's a promise to the believer. Being blessed when the Master comes is a blessing of anticipation for the believer. Secondly, to be ready for Jesus' coming, not only must he be your master, but consequently he must, you, you must be his servant. Now, this, this gets a little tricky because in the New Testament, as you know, the New Testament was written originally in the, the language, the trade language of the day was written in Greek. It wasn't written in Hebrew, the Old Testament was. But the Greek. And so the word for servant in the Greek is doulos. And the word doulos literally means what? Slave. Slave. It means slave. Now we don't, that in our American culture, we, we I mean, in any culture, I mean, we, we don't like that word. We have great sin in our American culture because of slavery. But in the language of the times and day, you've got to remember the Bible was written in a day and time much different than ours. And so it wasn't just slaves who were slaves in the sense of the way that the African Americans were uh, abused and, and brought to this country to be sold into slavery, which again is, is a great sin that I believe we're still reaping the whirlwind for. Um, but often is that people were slaves because of their economic situation. Let me give you a real contemporary illustration. If you're in debt, you're a slave. If you're in debt, you're a slave. That means you are beholden financially to someone over you that can make you jump and you say how high because you are beholden to them in debt. The slavery often, not only because there was military conquering, was a lot, but oftentimes in the New Testament they were slaves and it was economic situations. They were, they could not, they were indebted. Remember Jesus talked about the, the wicked, the, the wicked moneylender and the, and all those parables that he would often use. And so that, why is that a big deal? Is because you've heard me say this before, is that, and I will, I will reveal my age, but when I say servant, I'm thinking of Mr. French. You remember Mr. French and Buffy? Mr. French on Family Affair? You know, we, you know, when we think of a servant, we think of those of my Downton Abbey fans, we think of Carson, right? That's a servant. Slave changes everything, doesn't it? When I think of a slave, I don't think of a tuxedo and a shirt and tie ready there with the, the cocktail when you come in or whatever it is. That a slave is a much different picture and dynamic. 
a slave, a servant, oftentimes is a servant in those situations because it's a negotiated uh, employee-employer role. That really is not a biblical picture. A slave is a better picture because a slave has no rights. You with me? A slave has no rights. A slave does not own a daytimer. It doesn't matter what the slave wants to do that day. The slave exists at the pleasure of the master. Okay? Servant, well, maybe I don't want to work for this master, so I'm going to switch jobs and work for this other guy or whatever. The Bible chose these words on purpose to drive home the point that a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is a slave to him. But aren't you glad that his burden is easy, his yoke is light, that he's not a taskmaster who's abusive, but he's a wonderful master. And, and all I'm doing is trying to drive home this point here is that we may work 40, 50, some of you 60 hours a week, but your primary job, your primary role is that you're a servant of Jesus 24-7. That's what Jesus is saying, that if you want to be ready for my coming, you must be my servant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Jesus purchased you by His blood. You belong to Him. To be ready for Jesus' coming, He must be your master. You must be His servant. And thirdly, to be ready for Jesus' coming, you must live in expectation of His return. Look at chapter 12, verse 37. Verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert. They're alert. They're ready. They're waiting. The homeowner um, should have been expecting a possible thief to come in. And so he says in verse 40, you too be ready. That's his point, is to be ready if you're expecting a guest, a guest, an important guest. I remember reading how when uh, President Carter was in office, there were times in the first few years of his presidency when he would travel uh, that he wanted to show that he was kind of a man of the people and he would stay, if he went somewhere, he would stay in people's homes. Now, if that's... Now don't, don't get into all the who... Just the president is the president and deserves our respect. So whoever the president is, whether you voted for him or not, but it'd be a big deal if the president, probably the Secret Service and all those people would come and show up and your, your lawn would look like a car lot because of all the security. Boy, now that's cheaper, isn't it? Than staying where, you, no, they want to descend the whole apparatus of the government around your little house and neighborhood so the president can look humble and common and sleep on your couch, right? That's a dumb idea, typical of a government idea, right? Um, the point is, what would you do? You would get ready. I would hope you would get ready. I mean, you would dust, you would clean, you'd paint maybe. I mean, you'd, bring, you'd hide stuff in that closet. You'd pack stuff under the bed. I have not been to your house. You would get ready, wouldn't you? You'd get ready. Even just some big shot coming and they want to stay at your house, man, you, you would prepare. Do you see what Jesus is saying? How much more when the King of Kings is coming should you not be preparing and ready? And with the same intensity of an earthly master, how much more so than the master of all creation? If you're expecting the King of Kings to come by, and to come, Jesus' point is, be ready, be ready. I like the story of the pastor who was doing his pastoral visits one, one day and went over to visit a church family. had been out of the church for a while or in and out and dropped by their house. And he rang the bell and they invited him inside to come in and have coffee and sit. And they were kind of surprised that he came by and the father, you know, he wanted to kind of impress the pastor, you know, kind of look more spiritual than he was. And 
And he said, um, told his little girl and said, Now, honey, now that the preacher's here, go get the, the book we love and bring it in here. She went out and came back in with the TV guide. <laughs> you see, <laughs> you got to be ready. You can't fake it. <laughs> Jesus said that we should be ready immediately to open the door. Verse 36. And again, he's using these as figures and, and pictures. You with me? That it isn't that if we were expecting this dignitary to come and he knocked at the door. Hold on, hold on, almost ready. Imagine the president standing at your door waiting because you're in there shoving that last bit of whatever under the bed. And no, you got to be ready. You got to be ready. Charles Spurgeon. Great Baptist preacher, London Metropolitan Tabernacle of the 19th century, the late 1800s. And I guess I love this because he, he wove in a, an illustration of his dogs, Michael. I don't know why I'm talking to you today, but I can look at Lonnie and talk about dogs. I know my dog lovers out there. Uh, but he worked in an analogy of his dogs concerning the second coming. You want to hear it? Pretty creative. Charles Spurgeon uses the analogy of his dogs to show that we should be expectant on waiting for the master's return. Spurgeon said that the moment, that at the very moment that he starts speaking, his dogs are sitting inside uh, his front door awaiting his return. As soon as he leaves, they're at the front door. They're waiting for their master to come back, okay? And at the first sound of the carriage, because this is what they drove around in those days, a carriage wheels, the dogs would lift up their howls. Why? Because of their delight that their master is coming home. Now, this is what Spurgeon says. He said, oh, if we loved our Lord as dogs love their masters, how we should catch the first sound of his coming. How we should catch the first sound of his coming and be waiting, always waiting, and never happy until at last we should see him. Pardon me for using a dog as a picture of what you ought to be, but when you have attained to a state above that, I'll find another illustration to explain my meaning. In other words, if you can do better than a dog, how much more should we be expectant and waiting the Lord's return? Sherry, let's, we're going to stop there. And... Uh, Be ready, guys. Be ready. What was today's message about? There you go. You got it all down. And you're thinking, how can, why didn't he say that in five minutes? Why did it take him 40 minutes? Why couldn't he just say, be ready and let us be done with it and eat? Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship the Lord just for a second and uh, pray and prepare our hearts. Sure, let's, let's sing for a moment. As morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise that rise from earth to touch your heart and glorify your name. Your name is a strong. just play. I want to read you something from John caught a vision of the future and the Lord allowed him to see beyond just the coming but to see when Jesus would be fully in reign fully in sovereign rulership over this universe. He allowed him to kind of see the future a little bit and John writes in Revelation 21 
This is John, a witness of what the Lord is allowing him to see. He says, looking into the future, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. See, I'm not worried about the Temple Mount and are the Muslims building this, because there's going to be a New Jerusalem. It's going to take over and cover that whole thing like that. So I'm not worried about the little shacks they're putting up there now, because I know there's a new heavenly city that's coming down. Amen? Amen? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Bride, husband, big picture in the New Testament. And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that what John 1 says? That he came and dwelt among us. You see, this is what makes Christianity so unique. It isn't, it isn't our attempt to attain God. It's God willing to become a man and to come among us and identify with us. Everybody else is trying to work their way to be accepted. The gospel is God dwelling among a sinful people and making them a new people, fitted and worthy for His presence. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and, he, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. I love, I love verse 4, Revelation 21. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that tell us? All the suffering. All the cancer, all the divorce, all the disease, all the heartache. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No funerals in heaven, all right? For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that's what we have. We have a trustworthy testimony from the voice of Jesus that these things are true. Let's just sing that one more time, Sherry. Jesus, in your name we pray. Come and Day. 